Hi, this is Patty Lapone. This is Allison Janney. This is Matt Balmer. This is Donna Murphy. This is Nia Vardalis. This is Jesse Tyler Ferguson. This is Beanie Feldstein. I'm Octavia Spencer. This is Ben Platt, and you're listening to Little Known Facts with my favorite person on the planet, Alana Levine. A-OK. Welcome to Little Known Facts, a podcast where you will hear unfiltered, raw, honest, and uniquely funny interviews with artists you love as they talk about the art they love to make. I'm your host, Ilana Levine. Hey, I heard you needed inspiration. He's Ilana and friends with some revelations. Little known back to the day, every little thing's gonna be A-OK. known fact about my guest today, she may have become a household name by playing Alana Beck in Dear Evan Hansen on Broadway, but the incredible amount of art this woman has put out into the world as a writer, as a singer, as a director, as an actress, knows no bounds. Welcome the glorious Crystalline Lloyd to the podcast. A-OK. everyone. My guest today is Crystalyn Lloyd. Crystalyn is an award-winning Broadway actress and singer. She most recently was Joe March in an off-Broadway production of Little Women and Princess Faye in Bliss the Musical in Seattle. She is most known globally for originating the role of Alana Beck in the Tony Award-winning musical Dear Evan Hansen, as well as Heather Duke in Heather's The Musical Off-Broadway and Daisy on the daytime soap opera, The Bold and the Beautiful. She has worked as an audition coach, teacher, and director for all ages, and recently was honored with the Core Values Award for Artistry, Professionalism, and Compassion by Broadway for All, an organization committed to the inclusion and equity of BIPOC, young professionals in the arts. It is an honor to have the glorious Crystalline on my podcast. Welcome, welcome, my friend. Oh, wow. Thank you. That's, that's a cool bio. Like I was thinking about if I had told my like adolescent version, the most awkward version of myself back in the day, if you had read that to her, she'd be like, what? Well, can we go back? What a perfect uh, opening statement. What a great thesis to begin this um, conversation with. When you picture that young girl, where were you? Where did you grow up? Who was around while you were having these conversations with yourself or not? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> with myself. I grew up in a small community called Spring outside of Houston, Texas. And uh, yeah, I had two older brothers and my parents are total nerds and they love numbers and engineering. My mom's a math teacher. My dad's a chemical engineer. But somehow I found my way to the theater and to the arts and I was singing um, in church, like in the church choir. Now I went to a predominantly white church. I lived in a predominantly white area. And so, you know, church choir is a little different when it's an all white choir versus an all black choir. But that was my upbringing, that type of contemporary like Christian music and vibe. And as I got older, I somehow found my way to the stage in high school and decided this is what I wanted to do. It was a very, I feel, I feel kind of like my story's not very romantic at that point just yet. Like it gets a little more romantic later on, but for the most part, I, I really did fall into theater 
um, simply because like sports didn't work out. And I'm so glad because it's, I just, I, I love my life, so. <laughs> when you talk about the romance of it versus the practicality of it, yeah. I'm not good at this, so I'm in this lane instead. Yeah. Um, yeah. Tell me when it sort of went from, I don't know, practical might not be the word, but sort of this is what I'm doing because I fit here in the yeah. genre versus this is my passion. I'm an artist. I need mm. to tell stories to, that's my food. Like yeah. that's what allows me to breathe every day. I think it would probably happen in the jungles of Borneo. That's where the romance started. <laughs> I was I was a missionary for uh, a year in 2009. And so I traveled to Southeast Asia with a Christian organization and uh, I trailblazed and trekked the jungles of Borneo with a group of other people. It was like maybe eight or nine of us. And I did that. I was in Southeast Asia for about three months. And the organization I was working with was super strict. And you couldn't bring secular music in your iPods or anything like that. It could only be Christian music or Christian approved or approved by them. And so I was able to get two Broadway cast recordings approved by them. And it was, oh gosh, Legally Blonde and In the Heights. And so I, those are the two Broadway musicals that I was constantly listening to while I was, I quit acting. I thought I was done. And I started to fall in love with where these, like, I just started remembering why I did it. I think when I graduated from school, you're, 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 you're herded out like cattle into this like industry and everyone's trying to convey about you and put you in the right slot. And I had been very disillusioned in my first year out. I, I had gotten some really beautiful opportunities, but was dis like I said, disillusioned by maybe some of the jadedness of the people around me or, you know, and I think everyone kind of feels this at some point in their career where you're wondering, like, why am I doing this? <laughs> what is the point of being an artist if I, you know, can't take vacations when I want, if I can't buy groceries, if I don't have gas for my, for my car to get me to work? And so it felt really good to let all of it go and go pursue something that I also was passionate about, which was my faith and spirituality but to find myself coming right back around to what I was created to do, which was to be an artist. And so I would say that's when the romance began, just laying in the dark <laughs> in a clay hut in like a, a glue farm <laughs> in Indonesia, just listening to In the Heights. <laughs> when you talk about um, sort of this idea of coming out of, I. You went to a musical theater. Did you go to a conservatory? What was your college experience? Where did you go? I went to Carnegie Mellon University in Pittsburgh. And okay. Yeah, it was, you know, they, they select a certain number for actors and a certain number for musical theater majors. So it was it was a great experience. And um, But afterwards, I thought I was going to go to New York, but I ended up going straight to Los Angeles. So, okay. Yeah. And is that because when you describe, I love the conveyor belt image of like all of these packages sort of being sent to their different destinations, as it were. Um, 
And so were they like, you should go be on TV? Like what, what were their, or, or how do you feel like when they tried to put you in a box, which is often what happens. And then you have to like pop out of the box and go live your life. Um, what, what was sort of the messaging that you had based on your time there and the teachers sort of saying what they yeah. thought? It was a culmination of, of circumstances with feeling as though I was working really hard to get a musical theater education. And it's hard when you have teachers who just don't believe in you. And I, I unfortunately had a teacher or two that were lackluster in my potential. And that's what college is for. College is for tapping potential. It is for draining a student and seeing like how deep can this well go. Mm -hmm. So it was just unfortunate at that point. I also experienced getting out into the, you know, once I decided to go to LA because I would go to New York and did my showcase and agents and casting directors at the time were comparing me to Anika Nani Rose. And at that time, you know, there was only room for really one Anika Nani Rose uh, if you're a black woman. And so I found agencies being like, you know, her agency, I remember at the time, I can't remember which one, but uh, they, they, they were like, we already have her. And when New York's showcase felt like I was, you know, I wasn't getting bold responses. Yeah. I was like, well, I'll just go to New York and just, you know, hustle. I will make them remember me. I will let them see that I'm different. And when I got to LA for our showcase, I was, <laughs> I just didn't care. I, I was like, I'm just gonna have fun. I had written some of my material for my showcase and was just ready to have a good time in LA. And I got up there to do it. And I guess because there was no stakes for me, I just, I had such a great response. I had an overwhelming response. I couldn't take all the meetings before I had to leave. Luckily, I, I found an agency that felt right. and. I came back and I think the I think the goal was like, oh, she's gonna be funny. She's gonna be the funny best friend. But there wasn't a lot of imagination back then. It's great how things have changed now, but because I wasn't, you know, uh, like a heavy set black woman, that took me out of a category. Mm -hmm. But because I wasn't, you know, skinny and like I, I don't know, it was I had I had an acting teacher in LA. Leslie Kahn, she, she gave me, she, she, you know, I, I would get great notes and feedback. And I finally went to her and was like, I just feel like I'm not being pushed enough. Like, I'm, I'm really wondering, like, what can we, she's like, your acting isn't the problem. It's your look. I don't know what to do with this. And I, you know, I look back now and I'm like, well, that's unfortunate because, you know, I went over to a teacher that, that did. And uh, I booked work, you know, with that teacher. So I think it was just a culmination of things of feeling like people didn't know where to place me on the conveyor belt. I would get feedback about being like Fantasia or Whoopi Goldberg, but also Regina Taylor or Regina King. And I'm like, this is not helpful at all. <laughs> it just led me on uh, a deeper quest as an artist, I think, which is the most important outcome that can happen when you're being tossed among these waves of indecision and yeah you're waiting for your time to kind of blossom and be nurtured so how far into this journey um 
did your first audition for Dear Evan Hansen come along? Oh, wow. I had spent seven years in Los Angeles. Um, and then I moved to New York and I think it was a year and a half into being in New York. I was working on a show called Invisible Thread at Second Stage. And I oh, got, wow. yeah. And, uh, yeah, so I went in for it while I was doing that show. And yeah, before we opened that show, I knew I was going into it. I was going into the next show at Second Stage called Dear Evan Hansen. I knew nothing about it. <laughs> so this is post it's Washington DC run? Yes. Or, okay, I couldn't remember it when Second Stage, DC mm -hmm. and then Broadway, but yeah, so you went, went- Yeah, it went DC, Second Stage, Broadway. And what, okay, so all you knew is they had done it out of town. It, it wasn't a household, well, three household words the way it has since become. Um, when you saw it, because I feel like if I had read that script before you were Alana Beck, um, I, I don't know. All I could imagine is now all I can think of is you like in that part, like it, it is you. And so how did you kind of know what to do with it? When I first read the script, um, I called my agent and I said, how is this going to be a musical? I said, this makes no sense to me. I said, maybe I'm just a little too political, but this is a young white boy who has a very obscure mental illness that isn't quite defined. And he tells really big lies for an entire two hours. And then there's no consequences at the end. And I was very uncomfortable with playing what seemed like the antagonist mm -hmm. in the script. And it was an opportunity to originate something. It was an opportunity to go into a room and see, you know, how much influence can I have as the originator of this role? I think it took doing a table read. We did a table read. And I think it's also just the magic of Ben and Justin's orchestrations and Alex Lacamoire's work on it that enchant, you know, the music is so beautiful. And when Rachel Bay Jones sings at the end, there's something very spiritual in the forgiveness that occurs in that moment that, you know, maybe I always think a little, maybe a little too deep, but, you know, my questions around punishment versus rehabilitation often right. come up. And right. So, um, How did you intuit how to bring these characters to life so deeply in a way that we just love you from the minute you enter the stage. Oh, that's wonderful to hear. I cared. I just cared. Mm -hmm. You know, it wasn't just a job to me. To me, this was, if this show is going to be what they said it was, I want to leave some sort of, you know, legacy behind that other brown girls can be really proud of. So I just cared a lot, I think. And I, that's also who Alana is. She cares. And, um, mm -hmm. I think that's probably what people saw, you know, was me wanting to infuse a real life person who doesn't just, you know, show up every three or four scenes to serve a purpose, but she has a life happening in the midst of this world that we may not be seeing. Was it a hard audition process or? 
honestly, it was very easy. The stakes felt high because everyone was making such a huge deal of it. Right. But for the most part, I went in and I only met with them probably three times. And, you know, it was a very easy room. Michael, Greif, and Ben and Justin were like already very lovely and were fans of, it seems like everyone who was coming in for their show. So it was, it was fairly easy. I didn't find, <laughs> I hate to say that because, you know, the, most of the things that have left me in tears on the floor with through audition processes are parts that I never booked. Right. That you invested so much in so and much wanted to write. Yeah. Yeah. So how quickly into the run did you realize at second stage, even before Broadway, that this was something big? That's a great question. I, you know, I think it was, I think it hit me when we hadn't, <laughs> we hadn't gone to Broadway yet. I don't even think, but someone like, like a, a newspaper article was posted about it. And like, you know, it had, it was like this full page. And I was like, oh my gosh, like, no one even really knows if it's like, we haven't even gone to Broadway. I think it kind of hit me then that mm -hmm. I was like, oh, I'm in like one of those musicals. <laughs> it's a hit. It's a hit, Charlie Brown. Right. right. Yeah. And was that fun? Sure. Or was the weight of the show? Um, okay, so it was fun. Sure, I had a yeah. great time. I mean, who who can say that their first Broadway show was a Tony Award winning Broadway show? A lot, there are people who can and that's a small percentage. And so I was grateful for the opportunity to experience the Macy's Day Parade, to experience going to the Tonys and to experience like an opening night party that had really like that the energy and the atmosphere of of a great show. That's a blessing. So I am so grateful for all of those moments. Obviously, a show with the, the stakes were high. The mm -hmm. stakes were high. And, you know, when you bring someone in as late in the process, they haven't had the show like in their body the way that those who have been doing it for three or four years. So there was a bit of anxiety for me in the ethos. <laughs> catch up. Or, catch yeah. up. Even by the time we got to Broadway, I still felt like I was trying to keep up with, you know, the everyone else who had kind of settled into it. But it was a whirlwind. And I think, you know, anyone who has been in a Tony Award winning show would tell you, yes, it's awesome, but you don't get there without sacrifice. So you just have to ask yourself, is it worth it? And, you know, it's like, well, if I never, if I'm in a show that doesn't win a Tony, but I have a great time, that's also a value. Mm -hmm. It just, it really is. It's the longevity of this career that is so infectious, I think. Because that show really, I mean, it was obviously something that was impactful for all ages, but it was obviously a very young fan base that really connected and saw themselves in the story um, and also a show that came up as they were growing up, social media is growing up and suddenly there's this accessibility to, or perceived accessibility to the stars of the thing that they love, right? Mm -hmm. And so now you're not just doing your show, there's an expectation that when you're not performing, you're also engaging somehow mm -hmm. with an audience. And then there's a stage door that's sort of 
incredibly <laughs> popular um, yeah. afterwards. How did you handle emotionally the the excitement and pressure of that kind of 20? It's like a 24 hour a day news cycle. For sure. I had a therapist, which was really helpful. Yeah. Um, Before the show or because of the show? Um. <laughs> and I have his or her number. <laughs> I don't want to make it seem like the show put me in therapy, but it, I, I definitely went to therapy. Needed uh, support. Yes, I needed support. I... I found that it was also good to set boundaries. That's so healthy. I, I, I'm, I often think of how we learn to be fans and when the media really started putting our mega stars on newspaper coverage and you look at Elvis and the Beatles and the way that we learned how to be fans from them. That's, right. And so the way that young kids respond is what they've been trained to believe is this is how you're a fan. Right. You scream in our faces. <laughs> you demand our attention. You, you know, sob. And it was overwhelming at times. But, you know, that's young energy. That's, you know, teenagers have a lot of valid emotions. And we live in a world where they should be able to express them now do they need to always express them <laughs> so close? No. And it was good because we as actors were allowed to set boundaries and we were allowed to say what we did and didn't want to do. And we're respected in that because this show did draw people who were needing something. And that's what's special about it. And, you know, that's also why you have to protect it, I think. How long did you do that show for? I only did it for a year and a half, two years, something like that. So the day after, right? right? Like when you, for the first time, don't have to be at the theater. Um, you don't have to worry about what you're eating, what your, you know, vocal health is for a minute. Yeah. Like, what did you do the oh, next wow. day? Like what happened after? It was such, it was, it was quite the tumultuous, you know, a week before I left the show, my therapist died. She had had a battle with breast cancer and we lost her. And so I think it was maybe the weekend before I left the show, I ended my relationship that I had been in. Me and my boyfriend broke up. And then I, the next day I did my, yeah, it was the next day I did my final performance. And my girlfriends and I had planned a trip to Jamaica. And so I got on a plane the very next morning and flew out to Jamaica. And I remember waking up, you know, from a nap we all were in and it was a beautiful Jamaica day. And it's just the sun is shining and the wind's blowing in through my curtains. And I just began to weep because that was a very significant chapter of my life that closed. And it did it so abruptly. And it also did it in a way that was like, nah, girl, there's no going back. Like the door closed. And I was like, wow, I'm leaving behind and moving forward. It was, it was probably, it was, yeah, the emotional release. It was what I needed. And that's what I did the day after I left the show. I woke up in Jamaica and wow. just cried and then drank a, a tropical, you know, vodka martini of some sort. Beverages. Lots yeah. of beverages. Well, you had to hydrate. Absolutely. Right. You were in a Broadway show that became like a big, huge Oscar winning movie in terms of how popular it was and how um, everyone knows you from that. Do you go, okay, I wanna set out now and do something super different. 
Do you make a plan or do you just kind of see what comes your way? I believe that, you know, God's waiting on you just as much as you're, you're hoping for favor in everything that you do. So I, you know, I don't, I didn't like to rush. I left the show to do something smaller that mm. to me felt artistically fulfilling. And I wanted to tell the story of a, of a black woman and um, in a black space. And so I did Dominique Mariso's play Paradise Blue. And I think that's, that's the sum of like what I want my career to be. Like if I love the anonymity of Broadway, I love mm -hmm. that you can be legitimized from an off-Broadway performance within the city and people will want to give you more work. People will want to work with you and that if you develop a reputation as a collaborator for developmental pieces, people will also call you into their rooms to work with you. And that's what I, was discovering I really enjoyed. It was happening a lot post Dear Evan Hansen and even a little before. And since then I, I've started a directing career and I am gonna be directing a production of a play called The Right to Be Forgotten out at the American Theater Group in New Jersey. And once you know my mentors heard that I was interested in directing, they were so supportive and jumped on and have been just the almost like the opposite of what I felt like I experienced in conservatory. Right. <laughs> so it's, it, I think it, everything you're asking, you know, that's what feels like is next for me is continuing mm -hmm. to be, cause that's what Dear Hansen was for me. It was a collaboration for me. It wasn't just like, being in a Broadway show was this is me as an artist collaborating on this project. And now it's time for me to move on to the next collaboration. So tell me why directing though. I mean, because you, first of all, we also, before we go, I have to talk to you about your cabaret show that you put together because you, you talked at the very beginning about what it was like to be, you know, a, a young black girl in a pretty predominantly white church and I imagine that's because you lived in a pretty predominantly white neighborhood. Yeah. And so I know that is very much part of the narrative of your cabaret show. Um, but so before we get to that, tell me like the idea to direct sort of beyond just, oh, wouldn't it be fun with my friends to like, I'll direct them this time, like really in earnest. Tell me what that, where that passion is coming from. It's definitely because I had good directors at mm. one point good directors who encountered me, you know, at my best and good directors who encountered me at my worst and brought out my best. And it's because of them that I was like, I would love to be able to do that for an artist. What does that look like mm -hmm. beyond being an actor? And one of my mentors noticed it immediately when we were working together, they were like, you, you give me the, like, you're giving me director energy, your mind. And I was like, I am interested. And that's um, curating a space for people to discover something is also so valuable to me and something that I am really passionate about exploring because I have had spaces where I didn't feel, you know, as an actor that I could completely show up. So there was an interest and a desire for me to, to be a part of the theater world in that way. And I also found that I had good ideas. <laughs> I started collaborating with writers in the pandemic and was directing a lot of readings um, 
but it just started making sense. And I just found that the opportunities just kept coming. So I was like, let me ride this. This is a fun wave. So how do you, you know, people, the, the word, there's so many kind of phrases that get thrown around and they're really heavy words if we really look at them in a safe space, right? That is, that is such a like talking point right now in the world to make people feel safe. Yeah. And, and how does one, how will you do that? Like, how do you do that? Not just say it, but like, how does that happen? I mean, one, everybody in that room is on equal playing field. Like mm -hmm. we're all human. We all are artists who are very good at what we do, but we're sensitive about our stuff. And I, you know, I always start out with just a breathing exercise of allowing ourselves to be present and to recognize that we are all somebody's ancestor's greatest dream. So we should treat each other according, accordingly. And I find that, you know, everybody in the room is allowed to express themselves. And it's always so interesting to find that when we start getting into the portion of table work, people really value each other's opinions. It's, it's just, it's like a, it's like a little magic in the room that happens. I can't quite explain, but I find that creating a safe space for me just uh, also allows people to understand that like, you're going to be taken care of. Mm -hmm. If there's ever a boundary that's crossed, it's going to be addressed and taken care of. The person who crossed it is going to be taken care of. Like I said, I, sh I believe in rehabilitation, you know, and not punishment. And some of the best directors I've worked with have exhibited so much grace as a director. You know, there are second and third chances because we're creating art and that brings stuff out of people. And some people aren't always facilitated with the emotional maturity and capacity, even as an artist to sit in a room in that vulnerability. So it's allowing that space to, to be a place of vulnerability, but also like, you know, protection. And I think that was like the most perfect TED talk about how to, I don't know, enter a room with grace and mutual respect mm -hmm. and allow other people to enter the same way and give them guidance if they don't. Mm -hmm. Right. And that's how I feel as a director. My job is to give you guideposts to him yeah. as the actor. Like, here's a guidepost. I, I just want to give it to you. Go touch it. If you don't like it, let's see where you, you want to go to. And, you know, one of my mentors says it's about igniting a spark within them. You light that match and you hope that it, you know, it, it spurns this bonfire that allows them to go on stage with confidence that the story that they're telling is impactful. And that's, yeah. that's what I want to do. I just want to light fires. <laughs> yeah. So you're a pyromaniac. Yes. That's what you're thinking. <laughs> a creative, uh, an, an artistic pyromaniac. Artistic pyromaniac. Um, I love that. So talk to me about, because you recently um, did your own solo show at 54 Below um, here in New York City. I know people who don't have the great privilege of getting to see you in person on stage can probably see little clips from the show on YouTube because your fans are always happy to share with others um, your beautiful work. Can you talk a little bit about, I mean, you've done lots of different shows over the years, but sort of this last one, um, the, the genesis of it, um, the joy of it, 
the catharsis from it? Can you just kind of share a bit about it? Sure. I, I mean, if you follow me on Instagram, I was posting up until the day of the show. Every day I would post something uh, from my past. And it was, it was a picture of me in, uh, as a token. That's the, the title of my show is Confessions of a Token Black Girl. So that for me was like serving an aesthetic. It was, thir- it was serving insight into what you're going to experience when you show up to the show that night. And my show was about being a token. I mean, just the roles you named at the beginning of this podcast, I was a token in Dear Evan Hansen, I was a token in Heathers, and I was a token in Bold and Beautiful. Three iconic roles for me in my career that are surrounded by a conflicted message that I'm a minority and my opinion and my experience was the least important on stage. Mm-hmm. And so for for my own catharsis, <laughs> going back into my life and seeing how, you know, growing up in an environment where I was the only little black girl on the soccer team or in Girl Scouts, swim team, baseball team, volleyball, basketball, church, youth group, I mean, you name it, token. So I had an interviewer at one point say something that that in some way has been a blessing for me because it's allowed me to navigate white spaces, which honestly, sure, but it actually created more resentment. The idea that if I emulated the behavior and the mannerisms of white women around me throughout my, you know, my time coming up and those really informative years in your teens and your twenties, uh, that I got, I got more of what I wanted. I got more respect and people were less threatened by me. I heard, I heard less often how intimidating I was. Um, and so it creates a resentment, this culture that is telling you, you can't emulate anything that your skin really looks like. Don't emulate that culture. That culture is secular and, you know, they don't love God. There's a lot of really interesting messages that are sent in that kind of Christian environment that I grew up in. So doing Confessions of a Token Black Girl was extremely vulnerable. It was very scary, but I had written music. And so I debuted five songs that I wrote and it, it was, it was awesome. I had so much support from my community. I had so much love. I had so much encouragement. I, you know, this was my first time doing something like that in New York. And it was my second time doing a solo show, just period. Right. I had done one in Los Angeles beforehand. And that was called, I think it was just called like random black girl, or maybe it wasn't, I can't remember what it was called, but. But different theme. Different themes. And that was when I was exploring more of my spirituality at that point. And, you know, trying to figure out yeah, what did that look like for me as an artist and as a Christian who had come off of that, you know, huge point in my life of doing missionary work in Southeast Asia. So this, you know, this was like a good 10 years later and I'm recognizing that my career, the bulk of it is based on token assimilation. And I had to grapple with that a lot during the pandemic because I've done a lot of beautiful pieces centered around black bodies and those weren't the ones that got the most attention. Right. And it's hard to look back and 
I, you want balance always. So nothing is all good, nothing is all bad, you know? So the pandemic was me sorting through that, trying to find it. And I think Confessions of a Token Black Girl at 54 Below was the first draft of that journey. So the music um, is, it, you know, I'm not done writing it. And I've already started, you know, culminating for the story and how to make that look like a musical on stage. So, you know, it's it's been really fun and to have people reach out and say, how can I help? Do you need free studio space? Like, let's get you a, an album. Let's get something, a concept. And I'm just like overwhelmed and so grateful because it's really hard to talk about my past because I just don't relate to that girl anymore. Right. And although I love her, I want to be able to look back and feel gratitude and respect for my own journey, you know, cause I'm still on it. I'm, I haven't arrived anywhere yet. <laughs> I'm still on it. So, yeah. Wow. Thank you. Yeah. yeah Thank you course. for being just so open and honest. Um, I know you have so much going on. And so I am so grateful to you for the time that you set aside for this podcast today. I am really grateful to you for doing that. Um, before I let you go, yes. if you don't mind, um, is, I mean, you've already shared so much, but is there a little known fact about you that you can add to this incredible yeah. conversation? <laughs> I, I rarely talk about this, but, um, and my mom and I are always like, <laughs> so I, I did a girl group growing up. I auditioned for this girl group in Texas, in Houston, and it was like a, three girls. One of them wrote the music and her mom was like the manager. It was three black girls. And I mean, I couldn't tell you who they are to this day. and. I still remember like one of the songs we learned by my mom. I remember she goes, well, they told you that they were getting ready to go on tour. And you said, mom, I don't want to miss prom. I, I don't think I want to go on tour with this girl group. And I, I often ask her, I'm like, mom, was that girl's time? Was that Beyonce's, was that Beyonce's group when I was a teenager? And she's like, we don't need to ask these questions, Crystalline. She's like, I don't want to go back. I don't want to try and find out. She was like, but... <laughs> So Can you imagine? I, not a lot of people know that, but I was in a girls group. I was, I was like the rapper. I rehearsed with them. I was getting ready to go on tour. And then I was like, no, I don't want to miss prom. Ugh, what a dodo brain. And it may or may not have been. It That's all we know. And when I met Beyonce, I was like, should I ask her? And I was yeah. like, don't, not yet. When you guys are like hanging out at the Met Ball, ask her then. Yes. Fair enough. Here's to that. <laughs> Thank you so much for being on the show today. I wish you a beautiful day. And I cannot wait to see all the things you direct, write, star in, okay. create that make the world more beautiful. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. Appreciate oh, it. My pleasure. One more thing. So many of you have asked, how do you donate to the podcast? Well, it could not be easier. Just go to littleknownfactspodcast.com slash donations. Instructions are clearly laid out. And I'm so grateful to you in advance for any donation you choose to make. But regardless, I have loved, loved, loved making the previous 200 and something episodes for you. I can't wait to make 200 more. 
I wish you a beautiful day. Stay healthy. Be safe. Until next time. The episode was edited by Nicholas Klar. We recorded in New York City. And the Little Known Facts theme song was written and recorded by Georgia Famusa with backups by Caleb Famusa. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org.